0: Well, let's try this. Good morning, Watts Bar. Morning. I think you've got more in you. Good morning, Watts Bar. Good it is, It's so good to see you this morning. Hey, I, I do something everywhere I'm at because I believe it's really biblical and I believe it's one of the calls that God has placed upon Janet myself. There are all kinds of scriptures, I won't name them all, that talk about honoring those who are over you in the Lord. And honor is something that our culture is doing a really poor job at in so many areas. But I will tell you, Jan and I, this is now home church. Now, we don't get to be here every week. We've got a pretty intense travel schedule, so we're traveling all over. If we're not here in church, I guarantee you, we do church more than anybody else here. We're in church constantly. So if we're not here, we're usually traveling somewhere you've got an exceptional team leading your church. That begins, wait just a second, wait just a second. That begins with your your senior pastor, your lead pastor, Kelly and Denise Goins. And you know, uh, the quality of leadership is reflected by the people the leader gathers around himself. And I don't know in one place that I've ever seen such an exceptional team like this place. I'm talking about Ben and Amanda, Bobby and Kelsey. I'm talking about um, Austin and Brianna. I'm talking about Casey and Tiffany. Have I left anybody out? I'm talking about Faye Rose, who was here this morning. Exceptional team. So what I want you to do is this. I I know you started to clap, but I always stop churches because usually what they do is they give that nice golf clap and it sounds sort of nice and polite and what have you. I don't like clapping like that. I, I love to give it up with enthusiasm because the scripture says that those who lead well are worthy of double honor. So could you really give it up for your team? Let them know how much you appreciate them. These are your people. These are your people. I love that. I I love this crowd on a rainy Sunday morning. I mean, it's like you had to get in your boat to get to church. And you are here. We're going to dig into God's Word, 1 Kings chapter 19. Now, I was going to preach on relationships. Relationships. But I think I've got another word that I'm supposed to share with you. And for those of you who need more about relationships, we'll close things out. So those of you who are signed up for the marriage conference, join us in the fellowship hall, lunch and the last section of of the conference. Uh, There's this movie, it came out in 1946. It's a pretty famous standard movie in America. It's called, It's a Wonderful Life. Anybody seen that movie, watch that. Yeah. If you've not seen It's a Wonderful Life, you may not even be a Christian. I mean, it's, it's that iconic in terms of, of great movies. You know, Jimmy Stewart plays George Bailey, and George Bailey gives up his moonshot to stay at home, run the family business when his dad unexpectedly dies, and things crash around George Bailey's life, and George Bailey comes to the brink where he seriously contemplates ending it all. He's discouraged. What I love about that movie and why I know that movie would never be made in 2023 is that intercession is pervasive throughout that movie. The movie opens with intercession. It's just a voiceover of prayers going out for George Bailey. God help George Bailey. God help George Bailey. And in the middle of this intercession, God assigns a senior angel To give an assignment to a junior angel. And there's this little conversation. I'll just give you a piece of it. Senior angel basically speaks to Clarence, a junior angel, and says, A man down on earth needs our help. And Clarence responds, Is he sick? And the senior angel responds, No, worse, he's discouraged. And at 10.45, earth time, that man will be thinking seriously of throwing away God's greatest gift. Now, we watch at least a portion of that movie every Christmas. And I think we do 70 some odd years later because the theme of it still resonates. People get discouraged. God dispatches this junior angel, and through a series of events, the junior angel gives George Bailey a glimpse of what his life or what the world would have been like without George Bailey. And George Bailey, his entire perspective changes. And a lot of times we watch a movie like that, and we think, oh, that's just movie magic. But can I tell you, I don't think Hollywood came up with the idea of an angel being assigned to a man in response to intercession I Believe that there's a passage in Hebrews chapter 1. I believe it's the last verse of that chapter that says are you not aware that angels are ministering spirits Sent to minister to those who will be the heirs of salvation guys We didn't get the idea from Hollywood Hollywood got the idea from us But what I wanted to speak to you about is discouragement Here's what Howard Henrick said He's a guy, he taught ministry at Dallas Theological Seminary for decades, and he said this. One of the greatest weapons the evil one has in his arsenal of weapons is the weapon of discouragement. Discouragement, he wrote, is the anesthetic the devil uses on a person. It's the numbing agent the devil uses on a person just before he reaches in and carves out their heart. And I think some of you are in that position where the evil one has discouraged you because he would love nothing more than to carve out your heart. Why? Next slide. Because you're never really defeated until you're defeated on the inside. What some of you don't know, you're, you're afraid to admit discouragement, but what you don't realize is this. Some of God's greatest and best have struggled with discouragement. Think about a who's who in terms of Bible people. We're talking about Job, Noah, Moses, David, Jonah, Jeremiah, Paul. The greatest man, not God-man, but man to ever live. And even Jesus experienced discouragement. I want to walk through this, this episode in the life of one of God's best, a dude who was a man's man. In case you think We're talking about a weak man. Change your idea. I want to talk about Elijah. Here's the setup for Elijah. Elijah was a dude who, when everybody else had forsaken God, Elijah stood for God. He's so bold for God that he actually faces off against a really bad guy and a really bad gal, the king and queen of Israel, a king named Ahab, a queen named Jezebel, and he calls them on the carpet and then he challenges they've erected this false religious system he challenges 450 prophets of baal and another additional 400 false prophets of other gods and goddesses 850 in all and he challenges them to a duel he says here's what i want us to do guys you really think your god is all of that i'd like for you to build an altar put wood on the altar You call upon the name of your God. I'll call upon the name of my God. And the God that consumes the the wood and the sacrifice you place on the altar, well, that God is the true God. You want to take a bet? And they take the bet. And the Bible tells us about this episode that occurs. I mean, these 850 prophets of Baal, they put on this amazing and incredible worship experience. They pray. They cry out. When that doesn't work, they dance around the altar. When that doesn't work, they literally begin to cut themselves. And Elijah is over, watching it all, sort of arms crossed. And then this dude is so bold. Remember, he's alone. He doesn't have an assistant. He doesn't have a team. He doesn't have a congregation. He is alone. This is a man's man. He's so bold that he begins mocking the prophets of Baal. This is in the original Hebrew. He actually looks at at the prophets of Baal and says, you guys might want to cry louder. Maybe your God is on the toilet. By the way, I'm not just being vulgar. That's in the original Hebrew. He literally says, maybe your God is using the restroom. Cry louder. He makes fun of them. They get even the more loud. And then... At the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah says, okay, enough of this. This is so beautiful. He rebuilds the altar of God that has been torn down. This is where revival begins. It's when we realize that there are some things that we left years ago that we need to restore and rebuild. He rebuilds the altar. He puts wood on the altar. He lays a sacrifice on the altar. And this is most amazing. They're in a three and a half year drought. It's severe. Water in that arid culture is the difference between life and death. And they're three and a half years without rain, which means all of the water is gone. Elijah says, I want you to bring barrels of water, pour it over the sacrifice. They bring 12, pour it on. I need another addition. They bring another 12, pour it on. Another, they bring another. What's taking place? Elijah is giving God his best. He's saying, God, I trust you so much that I'm even giving you my source of life, water itself. I pour it out upon this altar because I would rather die then you not show up. And then he steps back, and I love this, he prays. Now, I grew up on the old KJV, and in the old KJV, that's King James Version, in that old version, his prayer, his public prayer is only 63 words. That's short. That's boom, it's over. And some of you wonder why a short prayer, because When you pray well in private, you don't have to make a show when you step up in public. You just get to business and God comes through. He prays and all of a sudden there's some kind of fire that comes from heaven. It hits the altar and in this order it consumes the sacrifice, consumes the wood. It's so hot it incinerates the stones. Even the stones used to create the altar are incinerated. All of the water is dried up, and an entire nation that has been away from God, and when I say away from God, I mean steeped in immorality for decades. They go face first on the ground, and they begin to cry out. I just want you to imagine, some of you have family members. You have written them off. You think your family member is so far gone, so far away from God, that there is absolutely no hope. But on that day, when God answers by fire, everybody hits the dirt, and they begin to cry out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. There is a national revival. Wouldn't you love to see that? Elijah is so excited. I mean, he's like Kelly after a great Sunday morning when he's come up here and preached the paint off the walls. When Bobby's lit it up in worship. When you go out of here on fire and Kelly is, oh, oh, can't wait, next week, ah! He's lit. And I don't mean lit in some ways. I mean lit with the fire of God. He's lit. Elijah's lit. And Elijah goes up to King Ahab, his arch nemesis. Without rain, three and a half years, he says, hey, you'd better get back to the palace. Because it's about to rain. And in this, in this situation with the ground this dry, it's going to create some travel problems, some hazard problems. Get back to the palace. And then Elijah goes off to do what? But to pray for rain. He prays six times, sends a servant to go look to see if there is any cloud on the horizon because Elijah is a man of science, not just a man of theology. He understands that rain results from clouds. Six times the servant comes back and says, man, there's not a cloud in the sky. Elijah says, go look a seventh time. Seventh time his servant comes back. I see a cloud. It's only the size of a man's hand. Elijah is lit again. (laughs) He gets up. He's so excited. He said, we better get down. And he takes off running from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. Does anybody know the distance between Carmel and Jezreel? This is a preacher, mind you. And he runs from Carmel to Jezreel. It's 17 miles. And the dude runs. He runs so fast that he outruns Ahab's chariot back to Jezreel. That preacher is in shape, people. (laughs) And when he gets there, listen, listen. I believe his expectations are on tilt. Remember what I said yesterday. Today's expectations become tomorrow's resentment. His expectations are in tilt because he just saw a whole nation turn to God. And I believe his expectations are this. Ahab has been witness to two incredible miracles. He just watched God send fire upon a sacrifice. None of his prophets could do that. God did. He just saw God end a a three-and-a-half-year drought by sending rain, He's going to share God's miraculous intervention with his wife Jezebel, and Jezebel is going to turn. There's not an ounce of hope in Elijah's mind for the nation to stay in revival if the leaders don't experience revival. So he's expecting that. Instead, when he gets to Jezreel, all of a sudden his cell phone starts buzzing. He looks at it. He's got a text from Jezebel. Let me just ask you a question. If you hear the name Jezebel today, if somebody, if somebody calls another woman, well, she's just a Jezebel. Do you think that's good or bad? <laughs> Jezebel lights up the phone. He looks at the text message, and the text message basically says this. I know you think you're all that. I know you think God has come through in a big way. But God, so help me if by this time tomorrow you're not just as dead as the 850 prophets that were just executed on Carmel. I've put a hit out on you. Get ready, they're coming. All of a sudden, this big strong man caves. He's smitten with fear and he runs. What is it that causes a strong man to break? I was in a gathering of pastors, and uh, we were walking through this story, and one of the pastors said, I don't get it. What is it that caused Elijah to break? And I think it could be all kinds of things. I think there are all kinds of explanations, but, but here's the one that makes sense to me. I think that text, that communication from Jezebel, I think it was just the straw that broke the camel's back. I think the dude has been really strong for a long time, but in one sense, he's been leaning into his own strength, not God's strength. And all of a sudden, just an added weight causes him to crash. Let me give you a few things that lead to discouragement, and they come right out of this text. In fact, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's read the text together. How about that? I think it'll come up on Sky Bible, so check this out. This is 1 Kings 19, verse 3 through about verse 10, and I'm going to read in the message. When Elijah saw how things were, he ran for dear life to Beersheba, far in the south of Judah. He left his young servant there and then went on to the desert another day's journey. He came to a lone broom bush and collapsed in its shade, wanting in the worst way to be done with it all, to just die. Enough of this, God. Take my life. I'm ready to join my ancestors in the grave. Exhausted, he fell asleep under the lone broom bush. Suddenly, an angel shook him awake and said, get up and eat. He looked around to his surprise. Right by his head were a loaf of bread baked on some coals and a jug of water. He ate the meal and then, noticed this, went back to sleep. The angel of God came back, shook him awake again, and said, get up, eat some more. You've got a long journey ahead of you. He got up, ate, drank his fill, set out, Nourished by that meal, angel food, mind you. He walked 40 days and 40 nights all the way to the mountain of God to Horeb. When he got there, he crawled into a cave, third time it's mentioned, and went to sleep. Then the word of God came to him. So, Elijah, what are you doing here? Here are the dangers that lead to discouragement. You ready? A failure to understand timing and seasons. Uh, Genesis eight twenty two says, As long as earth remains, there will be planting and sowing, planting and harvest, planting and reaping. Between the words planting and harvest, planting and reaping, is the small word and. There's a season for planting and there's a season for harvesting. And sometimes we crash because we don't understand the process. We think we're in the reaping period when we're still in the sowing period or the waiting period between the sowing and the reaping. See, some of the stuff that produces discouragement is this, the way of God. We thought things were going to be easy. They turn out to be hard. The why of God. We want answers. All we have are questions or the waiting on God. Things Things aren't turning out according to our timeline. Anybody discouraged in the waiting? I really believe Elijah thought when he saw a nation turn to God, he thought it was harvest time. And he was still in sowing season. Here's the word of God for anybody tiptoeing on the edge of discouragement. Galatians 6, 9. Don't allow yourselves to be weary or disheartened in planting good seeds. For the season of reaping the wonderful harvest you've planted is coming. The message translates it like this. At the right time, we will harvest a good crop if we don't give up or quit. Some of you, you thought it was your harvest time. You're still in sowing time and you're contemplating giving up. And the writer says, hey, harvest is coming, but you can't give up right now. Don't quit. Stay in it. Second thing that leads to discouragement, fear That undermines God-centered faith. The Bible plainly says in verse 3, Elijah was afraid. You ever heard anybody say, we say this a lot in Pentecostal circles. Somebody will say something like this. Fear and faith can't coexist. Doesn't that sound good? Sounds good. I don't know where they came up with that idea from the Bible. Because sometimes it feels like fear and faith are married to each other. In fact, sometimes it's our fear that prompts us to turn to God in faith. It's not a question, are you afraid? This is the question, is your faith louder than your fear? See, whether you're walking in faith or walking in fear shows up in the way you talk. Discouragement has a voice. Discouragement will talk to you. Sometimes the reason you're so discouraged are the words you're constantly saying over yourself and about yourself. You need to change your language. There's an example in the Bible. Numbers 13, 12 spies sent to do a reconnaissance mission on the Canaan land. Ten come back. Ten say we can't. The city's wall, the giants are big. We're too small, we're too weak, we're so insignificant. Two spies come back and say, we can, we should, God's for us, he's good. It's interesting that this is one occasion in the Bible, one of the only times in the Bible when both sides were right. The ones who said we can't didn't. And the ones who said we can did. Here's the point, guys. What comes out of your mouth determines what you can do and what you can't do, especially during times of discouragement. That's why we need to adopt Joel chapter 3, verse number 10 as our verse. I love this. For this final battle, in other words, in this final period, let even the weakling say, i am a warrior i am strong can i tell you something we know the names of the two guys that said we can't what were their names the two spies what are their names joshua and yeah we name our children after joshua and caleb does anybody know the names of one of the ten spies who said we can't we don't know their names one of them was named shemua we don't name our kids shemua that's a whale that's a whale let me just say something to you We don't care about the names of those who couldn't. Why? We want the story of those who say, I could. You know what we don't want? We don't want to listen to those who always complain, all those who murmur about how life gave them a bad hand. Life did this to them. Life did that to them. I would have done better if so and so hadn't happened to me. Why don't you quit being a victim? Why don't you go all David Goggins on the devil's butt? Why don't you raise up and say, you know what? I was raised in a difficult situation. I experienced a lot of pain in my life but I became the kind of man who said greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world this is not going to take me down it's going to raise me up I'm going to become all God wants is your fear talking louder than your faith go ahead and give God a loud cry. I'm just going all old school Pentecostal on you guys this morning So three, three, isolation and loneliness leads to discouragement. He left his servant there, went on alone into the wilderness. Discouragement and despair feed on isolation. Now, I'm a guy who is prone. Notice that word, prone to discouragement, prone to depression. That's why in the marriage conference, I said when my wife is away, I have to watch what I watch. I do. The maintenance of my mind is a a 24-hour-a-day, 7-day-a-week, 365-day-a-year job for me. One of the things I realize is when I least want connection and community is when I most need it. One of the things I've realized is this. When I least want to come here is when I most need to show up. David said, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of God. He didn't say that because his life was perfect. He was glad because he understood that the gaps, the distance between what he was experiencing in life could be filled by the presence of God and the people of God. God's presence and God's people could fill in the gaps, so he avoided loneliness and isolation. Fourth, unwise and unfair comparisons. Elijah sat under a solitary broom tree and prayed he might die. I've had enough. I'm no better than my ancestors. He begins to compare himself with others. This is a danger. This is a trap. Here's why comparison is so dangerous. We often compare our worst with someone's curated, filtered best. And social media hasn't done us any favors in these regards. You do know that every picture someone posts on social media, it's filtered. It's curated. They gave you the choice pick. They didn't give you the real pick. We even know these days that all of the superstars that we hear, not yet. We've got a ways to go. So they sent you out too early. uh, It's not, this is the first four, not the second four. Give them a big hand. I turned around. I thought they want me to get done early. You're just diligent, Bobby. You're just, come on. Y'all are awesome. I didn't know what was happening for a second, (laughs) that we would have had a long closing. (laughs) What does that piano mean? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) let Let me try to remember what I was saying before I went off on that rabbit trail. Unwise comparisons. Social media has done us no favor in these regards. Somebody posts a pic, it's filtered, it's curated. That's why the scripture tells us it is unwise to compare yourself with someone else. Get this. If you're going to compare yourself with anyone, compare yourself with yourself. Think of it this way. I may not be what I want to be. I may not be what I'm going to be. But thank God I'm not what I used to be. I've been redeemed and God is taking me somewhere day by day. Here's the next thing. Physical, mental, emotional exhaustion. Three times in the text, it says Elijah went to sleep. This dude was physically exhausted. Discouragement feeds on emotional, mental, physical exhaustion. Let me just say, one of the best things some of you could do when we finish up, wrap up marriage conference today is to get home and take a nap. It is spiritual. Rest in a way that reveals that you really do trust God. And then finally, fifth or or sixth bullet, whatever it is now, a loss of vision, mission, and purpose. God shows up and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah goes off on God. And this is really interesting. When Elijah goes off on God, he rehearses what he views as his past failures. He doesn't, he doesn't speak one word of vision, one word of purpose. He says... I've been doing this. I've been showing up. I've been doing my thing, God. Why ain't you been doing your thing? I've been in the game. Why haven't you been in the game? I've served the Lord zealously and faithfully, but your people have turned against you. They've torn down your altars. They've forsaken you. I'm the only one left. It's all past-oriented, and not even an accurate picture of the past at all. He's failed to have a vision that is bigger than himself. So let's get to the road of recovery. Now, Bobby and pianist, we're about to get to the right number four. (laughs) And by the way, the next few numbers don't take me as long as the first few did, okay? So how do we recover? How do we pull out of discouragement? Here we go. You ready? Get some rest. Get some rest. Get some R&R. Your body, soul, and spirit need rest and recreation. Three times in the text it says Elijah slept. Three times in the text. Here's what Pat Morley writes. He says 20 to 30% of the people walking into doctor's offices are there because they're feeling fatigued. He goes on to say, some medical professionals estimate that up to 90% of all doctor's visits result from stress. Here's what I'm saying. The most spiritual thing some of us could do is take a nap. The most spiritual thing some of us could do is get serious about keeping a Sabbath. The most spiritual thing some of us could do is sleep, actually sleep. At night, rest a full night. Jesus said this, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest Two. Here's the second thought. Put your body into motion. I love this part of the story. Put your body into motion. Now, listen, this isn't going to sound like a spiritual word, but it's in the Bible, so it must be a biblical word. Three times in this story, exercise is referred to. Elijah runs 17 miles from Carmel to Jezreel. He gets to Jezreel. He runs from Jezreel, walks, runs, from Jezreel to Beersheba. That was a distance of 120 miles. And the Bible says this, he made it in six days. That means he averaged 20 miles a day. He gets there, falls asleep, has this episode where he goes to sleep a couple of times. An angel wakes him up, fixes him a meal each time. He walks, runs again. He walks from right there at Beersheba to Mount Sinai, Mount Hormel, 250 miles. Anybody doing the arithmetic? 17, 120, 250. Hate to mention the dude again, but this dude is David Goggins. You seen that, dude? Navy SEAL, Army Ranger, long-distance marathon computer. I mean, the dude runs 100-mile marathons, like, sometimes once every other week. I mean, he's out there. You watch his videos. Don't watch his videos. Because God needs to help him with his language. But he's out there he's always got his shirt off because he's not buff at all he's not built at all just holds the world record for most chin-ups in one 24-hour period something like 4600 and some odd chin-ups without stopping david goggins elijah is david goggins 17 miles he collapses he goes another 120 miles He collapses, goes to sleep. God wakes him up, eats, goes to sleep. God wakes him up, eats. Here he takes off again, 250 miles. What is he doing all this time that he's running, that he's walking? That takes us to our third point. Get there. Get real with how you feel. Talk to God about your situation. The word of the Lord came to him and said, what are you doing here? God was inviting Elijah to name his feelings and emotions. God understands that we tame our feelings by naming our feelings. God's basically saying, okay, go ahead, Elijah. Tell me what's going on. What are you feeling? What do you feel about what you're feeling? What are you sad about? What are you mad about? What are you anxious about? Where are your, where's your body feeling these feelings? Where's the tension at? Where's the stress at? Is it in your shoulders? Is it in your gut? Is it in your neck? Is it in your head? What's going on with you? And I think all the while, Elijah is running. He's talking to God. You ever seen those Goggins videos? I love them. Hate to admit that to you. You! Sitting on that couch! You couch potato! That's what you are, couch potato! I know it's 35 degrees out here. It's cold! I got my shirt off because I don't care if it's cold. But your weenie, sitting on your couch, making your excuses because it's cold. Get up. Get up. He usually says some good words here about getting up. (laughs) And his constant sign off is, get hard. Stay hard. He's talking about, don't let life defeat you. You defeat life. I don't think Elijah's having that conversation. I think Elijah is, I'm so ticked at you, God. I'm so angry at you. I thought a nation was turning back to you. They didn't turn back. There's nothing different with Elijah. I mean, there's nothing different with Jezebel. There's nothing different with Ahab. They're the same old, same old. It's always going to be the same old. Why aren't you coming through? Can you imagine? I won't have to do my exercise routine today. Can you imagine 370 plus miles of that? Four, be still so you can refill. What happens? Elijah winds up in a cave. He's still praying to die. Give our musicians a big hand. there it is he winds up in a cave and God says I just want to demonstrate I'm still God and there's a windstorm like a violent tornado there's an earthquake the Bible says this the mountains are literally ripped in two and and then there's a fire What's going on? The same supernatural phenomenon that showed up hundreds of years before on Mount Sinai when God gave the law shows up for Elijah. And this is really interesting if you're doing the Bible portion of this. Who shows up at the Mount of Transfiguration and has a conversation with Jesus? Anybody remember Elijah and who? Moses. The only two guys who got a spectacular multimedia show by God himself show up to talk to Jesus. What are they talking about? I don't know, but what I can tell you is this. For Elijah, the Bible says plainly when it comes to the windstorm, the earthquake, and the fire, God was in none of them. Then a still, small voice. Kelly, come up, please. What does... What does God say in this still, small voice? We don't know. Scripture doesn't doesn't record it. I think there's a purpose for that. Some of the things God says to us are so intimate, they're reserved only for us. They're meant only for us. So we don't know. But but we can surmise from Scripture. In other words, we can guess that it might have been something like this. I'm going to have Kelly represent Elijah. And God speaks a still, small voice. The Bible says he goes to the mouth of the cave, and it's such a reverent moment. He actually takes a portion of his clothing, and he puts it across his face so that only his eyes are showing. In other words, he knows he's in the presence of God, so he takes this posture of reverence. He doesn't want anything exposed. In the presence of God, this is such a holy moment. And God comes up. I think God says something like this to him. And I can't whisper because you wouldn't be able to hear me if I whispered. But God says, hey, son. I know. I know you feel like you need to retire. That you just need to hang it up. I know you feel discouraged about what has happened and the fact that Ahab and Jezebel didn't turn their hearts to me. But I've never called you to be successful, son. I just called you to be faithful. And when it comes to faithfulness, you've killed it. And I know that you feel like I've missed these moments and I haven't been present. Especially after the fire, I wasn't present. But I've been with you every step. I've never forgotten you. I've never taken my eyes off of you. You are my son. And you need to know you're not going to retire. You're going to refire. In fact, I've got three people that I want you to anoint. And one of your most important assignments is going to be a guy that's out in this field right now. Nobody will be privy to that moment. He's plowing behind a yoke of oxen because this is what he thinks his entire life is supposed to be. But you need to know he's going to be a prophet in the spirit of Elijah. In fact, he'll have twice your anointing and do twice your number of recorded miracles. I've got my hand on that kid, but he needs somebody who will walk alongside him, believe in him and pour into him, and you're that somebody. So I want you to know your life doesn't end in this cave. But i'm bringing you out of this cave and i'm bringing you into glory and by the way because of the way you've walked with me you won't even experience death i've got a chariot a sign and in the last stage of your life a chariot is going to come gather you, take you home into my presence. you walk so close to me and are so close to me that one day at the end of your walk, I'm just going to say you're closer to my house than you are to your house. Come on home with me. You're my son and you've got what it takes. I've given you what it takes. Hang in there. Refire. I'll restore you now. Amen. Thank you, Kelly. 5 How do we recover? Look up, reach out, go serve someone else, believe again, love again, serve again. We sang this song earlier and I've asked Bobby to lead this chorus.